Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Investigate beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s, finding out what happened to her or your in the game, sister. With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. Search for hidden objects from the parlours of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. Each chapter uncovers a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve, and I've had a lot of fun. Currently on chapter 7, making progress little by little, tapping away on my phone to get all the puzzle pieces in place. While searching for the murderer, or whatever happened to your sister, you get to decorate your own island with gardens and buildings and chat and play with other Others by joining a detective club. It's a lot of fun and very social. I play while I'm on the train. It keeps me active between my journeys to London and I love the time limits that are pushing me to find those clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a very special episode of On The Edge with Andrew Gold. It's John Ronson. Many of you know him. Many of you might not. Who knows what you're interested in? But he wrote The Psychopath Test and he wrote uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed and he was behind the movies The Men Who Stare at Goats and Okja and uh, lots of amazing things. He's a hero of mine and part of why I got into this whole biz. He's been on the show before, of course, and it was a pleasure to get to speak to him in person and do this interview about his latest podcast, which is available on Audible. I do suggest you go and get it even if it means getting a free trial and seeing where you go from there. Um, It is called The Debutante, and it is about... Well, you're going to hear what it's about, but it's about a woman called Carol Howe who began as a debutante and fell into the Nazi world. And while all that was happening... Well, not while, but after that happened, we get the Oklahoma bombing, which is, as John will explain, one of the biggest, maybe the biggest domestic terrorist acts of all time in the States. And she could have potentially stopped it. But she was a white supremacist and Nazi at the time, or was she an informant? So John's here to sort of explain those pieces, uh, and I think he does a great job of it. Like I said, go check out his The Debutantes on Audible. Big episodes coming out, David Baddiel, Richard Dawkins, both coming out in the next week or so. Uh, I hope you'll enjoy those. And make sure to sign up on patreon.com slash Gold to support the podcast. But now, you're on the edge of The Debutantes with John Ronson. I've got John Ronson on the show. Without John, I haven't told him this, I probably wouldn't be doing this, what I do. Why? Well, because I read your books and I thought I want to be a journalist. Ah, yeah. <laughs> How about me being inspiring? I know, you must be sick of hearing it. Inspiring <laughs> young minds. Inspiring the young minds. Oh God, I'm, I'm getting to that point where I'm no longer young, actually, 34. Right. Mm. Yeah. Well, anyway, John has a wonderful new podcast called The Debutante, which I absolutely loved. I love everything John does. I just devour it, and you guys should do as well. It's on Audible. I'll talk about it at the end as well, where to find it. 
and stuff. Uh, John, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be back in London. Yes. Nice to see you. Oh, that's nice. It's nice to see you. Tell me about the debutantes. Okay. Well, actually, this is the story that's been 30 years in the making, because back in the 90s, so in the 90s, my beat was white supremacy. I yes. spent a lot of time at, you know, Ku Klux Klan compounds and and so on. Uh, I remember I spent, a, I spent a while with a politically correct faction of the Ku Klux Klan <laughs> that had banned the robes and the hoods and the cross wow. burnings and, you know, banned all the things that were kind of most fun about being in the clan, presumably. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember that they were allowed one cross burning a year uh, and they were rusty that they couldn't remember. I always remember, that, so I went to the field and there was the cross like lying prone on the floor and all the clansmen were standing around it because um, they couldn't remember whether to soak it in kerosene and then raise it or raise it and then soak it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so then their leader, Tom Robb, comes over. And I say, Tom, do we soak it and then raise it or raise it and then soak it? And Tom said, you soak it and then raise it. Like, how are you going to soak it once you've raised it? And then he gave me a look, I'll never forget, a look to say, I'm sorry that my clansmen are such idiots. <laughs> and I thought, this is funny. He's like, suck. he didn't know I was Jewish, but he was the <laughs> grand wizard of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, sucking up to the, to the Jewish guy. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, so that was one of my adventures back then. Yeah. I, I spent time at Aryan Nations, which is a really scary, sort of skinhead, violent place where they all surrounded me and asked me my genealogy. Uh, yeah, I said I was Church of England. It's funny, you know, Louis <laughs> Theroux was in a similar situation where he was um, um, he was at a place like that and they asked him if he was Jewish. Yes. And he said, I'm not going to tell you whether I'm Jewish or not. Uh, and he isn't Jewish. And then I was in that situation and they said to me, are you Jewish? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny you raised that one because that's the one thing of Louis's what it's another yeah. point where I thought, oh, wow, that's something I might try and say if someone asks me. Because right. my temptation would be to say, no, 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 I'm not. If someone said, are you Muslim? Are you this or that? And I thought they were going to kill me if they found out I was. No, no, no. Well, he he handled that so well. So well. That was definitely a moment where Louis exhibited more courage. Than I did. <laughs> and then again, you know, he's not Jewish and I am. So maybe we were, we should, we we're allowed to respond differently yeah but if you were asked if you were something else that would have gotten you killed yeah yeah like, no but you shouldn't you shouldn't think badly about those people is what i would say yeah right well yeah I mean, well you should have been there yeah but <laughs> so anyway so i spent a lot of time in nazis in the 90s mm. and there was this i kept hearing about this woman mm. now most you know if you go to Aryan nations or elohim city which is a very eccentric white power violent and dangerous, but also very eccentric white power community in the Ozark Mountains, where all the Nazis live in little, well, not Nazis, white power people, all live in like little hobbit homes. And uh, I went there in the 90s too, and they all, all the children of the community put on a performance of Riverdance to welcome me. Oh, nice. Yeah. So all, my point is that they're mainly like working class, like young working class men. But in the middle of this was this beautiful, charismatic, former debutante called Carol Howe. And there was two great mysteries about Carol Howe. One was, what is this debutante from the wealthiest part of Tulsa 
doing hanging out in all of these like really hardcore, scary white power places. I mean, at the time she was dating America's craziest white supremacist, a man called Dennis Mahan, who even by Nazi standards was like nuts. Um, so that was the first mystery. Who is she? Like, how does she end up there? What's her story? And then there was another mystery. And the other mystery was that she had a story to tell. And her story was that she was a real Nazi for a while. But then she became an undercover government informant and she was spying on the same people, Dennis Mahan and this mysterious German called Andy the German. And her story was that these people were involved in the Oklahoma City bombing. And if she'd only been listened to, then the bombing, the worst act of domestic terrorism in American history, would never have happened. So there were two great mysteries that I always wanted to solve. And um, I failed back in the 90s, but I tried again before the pandemic. And for the last three years on and off, I've been piecing together Carol Howe's story. And the show is called The Debutante. It's a brilliant show. And so we, so we look at how far you've gotten with those two strands then. So the first one being how, how did she end up, this debutante woman? Like, what is it yeah. about her and her upbringing that took her to white supremacy? That's so interesting. I mean, it was basically a series of very bad life choices. Uh, so she was rebellious. She was adopted. Uh, which I think is, you know, is part of, you know, but there's also lots of adopted people who don't become Nazis. So I'm sure there was other things that she wasn't unpacking. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, she, she, she blamed her, the fact that she was adopted later on. Yes. So it's so funny. I mean, her descent from debutante to Nazi is is really funny <laughs> if you've got a, <laughs> if you've got my sense of humour yeah that uh, is the John Ronson sense of humour isn't it it's, I, I because you were talking before it might shock some people who don't know your humour I, I guess maybe it's a British humour to an extent of going to these these places and sort of lo- like looking at the clansmen and seeing the trivialities uh, mm. the funny little things that they've missed and things like that you know? yeah and just like I don't know human absurdities I, I find funny yeah uh, uh, so Carol so, okay, so she leaves school, moves to Colorado. We think, but are not sure, that she joined a little kind of pseudo-cult, not a real cult, but a pseudo-cult called the Temple of Psychic Youth, um, which was connected to the band um, Psychic TV and Throbbing Gristle. Oh, I don't know. By weird coincidence, I don't say this in the show. So Psychic TV and Throbbing Gristle were run by a guy called Genesis Piaridge. Uh, and who was kind of a, you know, in the 80s, he was a big counterculture figure. He recently died. Um, anyway, I went to his house. I'm completely unconnected to the Carol Howe story. <laughs> I, I met him and he invited me to stay at his house in Brighton. So I did. And he said to me at one point, I'm just going out to get some milk. Make yourself at home. Don't go in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> so the minute... The door closed. I, I went straight to the attic where there was an altar with like human skulls and what? stuff. What? Yeah. When he said, don't go in the attic, do you think he meant go, go on? Because he wanted you to see. I mean, it's possible. Yeah. Don't think of a pink elephant. I wouldn't go in someone's house up to the attic. The, I don't think I would. I was up there like a bat out of hell. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should then. We were talking about like Louis Theroux and I learned, okay, that's what I should do. And now I'm thinking, okay, John Ronson would go into someone's room in the house. Maybe I should do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. 
So anyway, so she, we think this is one area of her life where we, we think we've got it right, but we're not entirely sure. But we think she joined the Temple of Psychic mm. Youth, uh, who were like, who would play with like Nazi imagery in the same way that, you know, Joy Division did and so on. It was kind of done back then. But it's possible that even if you're not Nazis, but you play with Nazi imagery, sooner or later, it's going to rub off on you and you're going to become an actual Nazi. Because she comes back after a year in Colorado to Tulsa. And the next time we can place her, is at a Halloween party in at end of 1993, um, where she starts chatting up this stoner drifter called Greg, and who we interviewed. First time he's ever been interviewed about Carol. I said to him, has anyone ever interviewed you about Carol before? And he said, no, only the FBI. <laughs> so Greg has this like, oh, such a funny story to tell about you know, dating and then marrying Carol after three weeks. They elope and get married. Then she forces Greg to get a, for them to get matching swastika tattoos, like very big ones, as big as Nazi armbands on their arm. So Greg immediately regretted it like the next morning. It was like, what the, what did I do? Yeah. Um, now Greg has it all like covered over with like little swirls and flowers, oh. which to be honest, makes it look like an effeminate swastika. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, uh, and then like yeah. Carol's like introducing her new husband to her very wealthy parents who were like Fortune 500 type people. Like he owns like an oil company and he's like, and you could just tell like, this is not, you know, they wanted her to marry a squire from the debutante ball, not a stoner drifter with a swastika tattoo. You do, you get a sense listening to the whole podcast, actually, there's this thread of her wanting to rebel against her upbringing. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that had a lot to do with it. That's certainly what Greg thought because uh, their marriage didn't last very long. But, uh, you know, she, they did like gift giving. Her, par- her parents blessed them tried to make the most of it. So they wanted to have like a, a party, you know, to welcome him for the family. And they went to a store and he could buy anything he wanted. And yeah. she was buying like a $3,000 crystal horse's head. Wow. Yeah. Michael Jackson levels, that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, he said, yeah, you know, he felt like Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so weird. And so do we have this sense then? So does this remind you, looking back, you've looked at so many cults and things, you looked into why people join them, presumably. Do you get, does she fit a mould of why people join cults? Well, at this point, she's not in a cult. I mean, she was briefly in... Psychic. Uh, psychic. Psychic TV, yeah, the TV. Temple of Psychic Youth. Yeah. But now she's back with Greg mm. and something happens. So what happens is they're out getting drunk an Easter monument in a park in Tulsa. This is Easter 1994. And there's these kids, white kids, this becomes relevant later, jumping off this Easter monument. And she thinks they're drunk. Her and Greg are like drunk. And she thinks, oh, that looks like fun. I'm going to jump off the Easter monument. So she jumps off, lands on her feet and crushes both of her heels. And so Greg like scoops her up, rushes her to hospital. And um, while she's recuperating, because she comes from a fancy family, they're giving her like whatever drugs she asks for, antipsychotics, <laughs> even though, how's that going to help your pain? <laughs> um, help your heels. Yeah. But she starts listening to a telephone answering service called Dial a Racist. Uh, this is like pre-internet. And if you want your kind of dose of racism, 
what you do is you phone up this number in Tulsa and a, and a racist um, like le- is leaving an outgoing message and like you, you phone up and listen to it. Yeah, the international corporations and the Jews control America, blah, yeah. blah, blah. So I well, might, might have to censor that bit of <laughs> what you just said because YouTube will pick up on it. Really? <laughs> They'll pick up on even though you're saying the context bit, you know, mm. they don't they don't care. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is, you know, ah, yeah. fair enough, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I won't. I'm going to leave it in and see what happens. Mm. But it's just funny that that's what's going through my head at that point. Okay, yeah. See well, I don't need to be deplatformed <laughs> on my account. <laughs> I'll call you up and say, can I come stay? <laughs> You've ruined my channel. Right. Yeah. So while Greg is like running errands for Carol, like doing everything for her as a doting husband, she is, unbeknownst to him, falling in love with the voice of the man who's leaving <laughs> these dialer racist messages. So she seeks him out oh. and they start dating. So she leaves, like Carol's parents must have thought when she left Greg, they must have breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> but then she- <laughs> and her next boyfriend is oh. so much worse than Greg. Greg yeah. is delightful and charismatic. <laughs> and Dennis Mahan, the man behind Dial Racist, is nuts. I mean, he's now in jail for four, in prison 40 years for mail bombing. Uh, he, he, he sent a mail bomb to a diversity center in Arizona. Uh. So he's like properly yeah. scary and violent and dangerous. Did it blow up? Yeah. No one died, but, but, Two people were, were badly injured. Who delivers? It's like just the post office deliver them. Yeah, I think so. They just don't know what's in it. And you, when you open it, it goes... Yeah, bang. We interviewed, or I interviewed, um, one of the women who got blown up. And it's very, I mean, my God. There was a moment when I'm interviewing her, she said she had a piece of glass and metal like embedded in her that they can't get out. So if she ever has an MRI, you know, she can't have an MRI. And I said to her, like, the glass and the metal, did it come from the room or did it come from the bomb? And she said it came from the bomb. I mean, can you imagine? I was surprised when I heard that because I remember thinking, how does she know that? But I guess they've, yeah. they've looked at what it is. It's a piece of the... Yeah, I guess. Yeah, but she, she knew. So this is that gives us an insight into Dennis May- yeah. Mahan. Is Mahan or Mahan? Uh, it's Dennis, Mayhem. It's M-A-H-O-N, Mahan. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, I th- would have thought it's like Ma- Man. I would have. Maybe right. that's American pronunciation, isn't it? Mahan. Yeah. So Dennis doesn't, you know, can't believe his luck. Like he is now dating, you know, this beautiful, um, smart, charismatic woman. She apparently, according to Dennis, wants to commit acts of violence. And he's like, see, this is why in answer to your earlier question, I don't know how good Carol is at a sort of why do people join cults? Because her like her poor life choices were pretty unique. Like, <laughs> they were pretty extreme. And you, I mean, I've spent, like you, I've spent a lot of time investigating cults over the years and I spent a lot of time, maybe we can talk about that later. Mm. Well, we can think about that as well. I mean, okay, I don't know, just off the top of my head, rebelling against parents. Oh, no question. Needing to feel special. Wanting to be in a little niche, just like we all do on Twitter, mm-hmm. an echo chamber. Status. Dopamine rush of being with people who feel the same way you do. With Carol, clearly there was a kind of... Um, you know, wanting to be an outlaw. Um, she later said that because she was adopted, she wanted to feel superior to other people. Mm. I guess, you know, I mean, that's like, I have no idea what Kawa's mental state is. Like, I have no idea if she's got like borderline personality disorder or whatever, but there's something there, right? If you, if you have low self-esteem, your way of dealing with it 
is to become a Nazi so you can feel like superior to people. I mean, that's a whole pathology in itself. I really like, um, you know, Will Storr and he's got, he's got mm. the status game. Mm. And that just, to me, works. Maybe, I, I don't know if that does for everyone, but the concept of why we do anything uh, because we want status in some sort of way. And if you change the rules of the game, it might be easier to climb that particular game. So if you become a Nazi and you happen to be this beautiful debutante, you, you can probably quite easily climb to the top. Whereas if she just stayed in like the real world with the rest of us, it might have been a bit more difficult for her to get to the top. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe so. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. But she wanted to be in the shadows, according to Dennis, who I interviewed 30 years ago and got a bunch of letters from from prison. Um, you know, he says, but he's a, you know, he's a Nazi and consequently an, unbe- an unreliable narrator. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> he said she was anxious to commit acts of violence and he was like, no, 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 I'm going to get you on mm. Oprah. I, I, I want you to be an Aryan goddess spokeswoman for the white race. Like he saw her as a recruitment tool. Mm-hmm. Makes and sure sense. enough, like he was right. Yeah, uh, he never got her on Oprah. Although those were the days when it was pretty easy for white supremacists to get on that like, Jerry Springer. Oh or, yeah, <laughs> the pre no platforming days. Yeah, but he did get oh, yeah. yeah, but he did get her on German TV, where the two of them you can still you can see it the footage. The two of them are sitting on a bench together. Dennis, twenty years older than her, paunchy, charismatic. Uh, and Carol, you know, showing off her swastika tattoo and saying, you know, when all other avenues are, uh, are, you know, gone, then we must take up arms for the white race. So what she, was their belief then? Um, oh, I, I mean, I think it was based around the whole Yahweh Christian thing of Jews are the mud people, you know, Jews, you know, all my, Jews, black people, they're like mud people descended from Satan and they have to be wiped out for for the white race. You know, Aryan nations at the time were, um, you know, telling their women to have as many white babies as possible. To, Yeah, but that's the whole Yahweh thing. Jews are descended from Satan. Black people are like, you know, inferior. And, you know, you have to battle them for the, for the good of the white race. Do you think part of why you've looked into so many of these... I mean, do you get a thrill from interviewing someone and they might not know that you're Jewish? And, you know, does that... Yeah, Th- thrill's not the word. Like Frisson. more, <laughs> more like fear that they're going to like kill me. But why do you, you put yourself into that position why do so I many do times? It? Oh, <laughs> you know, my friend Louis Theroux was asked that question one time, and his reply was, um, "Because not doing it is worse." Oh, yeah, but that's a noble explanation. But is that the truth? It, yeah, in a way, because. You know, when you're out in the field, and I've been doing this for like 35 years, not just with Nazis, with like all sorts of people. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, your job out in the field is to gather material and then your job back home is to shape it into a story. And for me, there is nothing more pleasurable than being at home and I've got a whole bunch, you know, I've got a load of material that I can now chip away like a, like a you know, autistic 
sculptor <laughs> right. for months and months and months yeah. and just make it perfect. You can't do that if you haven't got the material. Mm. So you have to put yourself in unpleasant situations. I don't enjoy the traveling, the going to dangerous places, mm. but what I enjoy more than anything in the world is having the material and being back home and making it work as a story. Okay. So I that's see. so when Louis says not doing it is worse, I think that's what he meant. And, yeah. and it's, it's certainly how I interpreted it. Interesting. I yeah. quite enjoy, maybe I'm a bit more naive and younger because I quite enjoy when I get to be with maybe evil people. Maybe part of me feels good compared to them. That mm. might be happening a little bit. Uh, and part of me is ha- that thing's happening in my head, that narrative of, of like, uh, you know, I could just be doing a boring job now, but I'm out with the most horrible person you can ever imagine and we're just having a chat. It's quite, it gives me mm. something. I, I agree. Uh, and there's a lot of times when I have been in dangerous situations, definitely when I was younger, like in my 30s, where I did feel exactly that. Mm. I remember being, when I was at Broadmoor one time, yes. the, um, used to be called the Broadmoor Asylum for the Criminally Insane. And um, I turned to a nurse. I was there for, the, for my book, The Psychopath Test. And I turned to a nurse and I said to him, uh, I said, God, I just, I feel so privileged to be here at Broadmoor. And he just kind of gave me a look and said, (laughs) said, well, we've got a spare bed if you want. (laughs) I'll just come in, do the story, write about it. That's all fun. You can stay there, nurse, and actually live with. Yeah, but no, but I agree. Like getting to go places. The first time I went to a Ku Klux Klan meeting, I was more thrilled than scared. Um. So yes, uh, that's diminished a little bit over time because I just like being on my own back at home more now. But certainly the adventurous side of it hasn't certainly in the past been a big thrill. So yeah. I, I agree. It's part of the fun of reading your writing and listening to your podcast as well, knowing if they knew who you were, that kind of... Yeah, yeah. Where were we with her story, of Carol's story? Yeah, so she... Okay, so she's now dating Dennis Mahan. She's an Aryan spokeswoman. She gets on German TV. Um, but then, according to her story, he assaults her. And she realizes that she's, you know, she's in too deep. So she goes back to her parents' fancy house in Tulsa and calls the police and gets out a restraining order on him, on Dennis. And the day she takes out a restraining order, she gets a phone call from the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, saying, you know, inviting her in. So she goes into ATF headquarters and they say, do you want to become an undercover informant um, to spy on Dennis Mahan and these people at Elohim City? He would take, Dennis would take Carol to Elohim City, this compound where a lot of really hardcore white supremacist murderers would go to hide. Do you remember the story of Alan Berg, the radio DJ? In, no. Okay, he was a Jewish kind of left-wing shock jock in Colorado who would like goad and bait neo-Nazis on the air. And he was murdered. And the people who murdered him hung out at, at Elohim City, this place where Dennis took Carol. There was a group called the Covenant, the Sword and the Arm, and the Lord, and the Arm of the Lord that did a lot of hardcore shit and they were hanging out at, at Elohim City. So Elohim City was like a serious, for all the children running around doing river dance mm. to welcome me, there was also serious, violent people there hiding out. So Dennis would take her there. So the ATF wanted somebody inside Elohim City. So they asked Carol to become a, an undercover informant. And she said, yes. And she just, she leapt into it. Um, 
as I said um, in the show that, you know, she leapt feet first into her new role, just as how she leapt into <laughs> neo-Nazism and leapt off that Easter yeah. monument. She told Dennis um, and anybody else who asked the entire time of the arc of her story that she was pushed off an Easter monument by a gang of black men. So that was like her quote-unquote origin story. That's why she became a Nazi. But Greg, her husband Greg, um, who was there, was like, that's nonsense. It was, a, it was a group of white kids and she jumped, she wasn't pushed. Yeah. And then other people have said that too. I, I believe Greg's story. Yeah, I do too from what I've heard. And- well, also with somebody else, as Andy the German, the mysterious man at Elohim City said to me when I interviewed him, if you're pushed off a, off a ledge by, by people, you're not going to land on your heels. Yeah. That's a really good point, yeah. yeah. Andy Straussmann, that was, wasn't Andy it? Straussmann. Straussmann. Um, so you were saying before you can't, obviously you can't diagnose from afar, but but if we were to speculate, and you've obviously done the psychopath test, lots of work on psychopaths and things, the way she's able to just bring in lies and things like that, just, mm. just like that, could she, does she seem like she's on the spectrum of psychopathy? I wouldn't necessarily say that. As I say, I don't want to diagnose people from, from afar, but, you know, um, you know, maybe there were some elements of borderline personality disorder, mm. which is a much less serious disorder than psychopathy. So what is that? Yeah, what's the difference? Border, okay, out of, out of all the personality disorders, you know, I know a lot about psychopathy because I've got the psychopath test. I know a lot about narcissism just from like personal interest. Yeah. I've had some in my life and I've done a lot of work on it. Um, borderline's the one that I'm a, I'm a little shakier on, but from what I gather... It's called borderline because it's on the border between neurosis and psychosis. So it's, so you're not, that's what I've been told. Like if somebody's listening to this and is shaking their heads thinking I got it wrong, then I I apologize. But that's what I believe is the case. So it's more, um, okay. So there's a book about borderline personality disorder, which by the way, may show that she's not one. Mm. One of the most famous books about the condition is called, I hate you, don't leave me. Uh, okay. so, so that says something about that condition. Mm. So right. if you see a, I imagine psychopaths as quite hardened people, yeah. whereas a borderline personality could be more sort of, I guess, more emotional. Yeah. And Carol actually, I wasn't emotional actually. I mean, she. One of the great things that we uh, that we managed to do was we got hold of of a whole load of material that's never been heard or, or read before. Uh, her, the tapes where she was wired up and, you know, it was incredible. And then Dennis leaving these threatening answer phone messages. We got hold of those as well, where Dennis has said is leaving these insane answer phone messages for her. Like, he, because the day after she became an informant, um, he's hiding in her garden. Like, she's got a restraining order out on him and he's hiding in her backyard. And he leaves a mess. So she calls the police again. And he leaves a message for her, trying to trying to convince her that it all been a misunderstanding. And he said, "No, no, no! I was hiding behind your tree because I, I, I just, I, you know, I, I knocked on your door because I thought the ATF were planning a raid and I wanted to warn you, uh, but you weren't in. And so I, 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 I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to sleep underneath her tree. I'm gonna have, a, I'm gonna have a little sleep, but keep my eyes open. <laughs> so I was asleep with my eyes open, and uh, you should be thanking me. <laughs> it's the maddest bit of audio. Isn't I know it? you should be thanking me because what I was showing you is that somebody could hide behind your tree and." <laughs> 
point an invisible laser at your house <laughs> and pick up everything that you're saying in the house off and behind that tree. <laughs> he was a lunatic. He's just a lunatic. I mean, isn't yeah. it? This was because she was leaving him. Mm. But then afterwards, I guess you'll, you'll go into, I guess, she became an informant and had to suddenly go back to him. Yes. And he just welcomed her with open arms. <laughs> <laughs> Not, it's like she, she, yeah, exactly. She'd left him, called the police on him twice. Um, brought out a restraining order and then like a couple of days later was like oh I'm back (laughs) and he's like not suspicious at all not suspicious at all I guess you really do think like FB I mean that's quite it would be paranoid to. I I guess because of who he was not Dennis though because you know I asked Dennis Mahan's brother who I interviewed like you know what was going on there like why wasn't he suspicious and his reply I can't remember if we put this in the show or not but his reply was that oh he was he was weak with women Mm. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, but I think it didn't. Mate. I I don't think that was in there. Right, but yeah. So that was his reason for that. Dennis was just like, yeah. And so Cal was now a confidential informant, like, um, you know, spying on Dennis for the ATF. The reason why Dennis ended up getting done twelve years later for the mail bombing in Arizona was because he was dating another woman who was also an undercover informant. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, you never. You always read about undercover informants, right? But you never imagine. They're just about, I guess, because it's a small part of the population are, are them. Well, I can tell you a story about undercover informants. One regret I have for the debutante is that I did this interview with this woman called Sarah Stillman, who's a writer for The New Yorker, who wrote a brilliant piece about undercover informants. I think it's called The Throwaways or something along those lines. Or Yeah, I can't remember. But um, it turns out that a lot of young kids, I mean, Carl was like 23. And it happens all the time. Like a young kid, a girl or a boy, you know, in their teens or whatever, caught with a bit of weed or maybe some ecstasy, and then they terrify her. They say, you're going to go to jail for like years unless you become an undercover informant. So they put her, they put this woman, there was a woman called Rachel Hoffman, so I'll tell you her story. Gone. I nearly put this in the debutante, but but didn't. Foolishly, I left it out actually, Mm. but at least I'm making up for it by telling you that. Yeah. So, um... Rachel, just what I said, caught with some weed and some ecstasy. They said to her, you're going to go to jail for a long time unless you become an informant. So they sent her to, on a drug buy, they sent her to buy like a massive amount of drugs and I think some guns from these two like really sketchy people in a park somewhere, I can't remember where. And they said, don't worry, you know, we're we're all going to be around you. We're going to be surveilling you. We'll make sure everything's okay. There's like 18, you know, cars following her you know and then the, the one of the drug dealers phones her and says uh the location's changed we're going to meet you in this other park somehow all the police that are surveilling her lose her so she's now completely on her own in a car with these two dealers in a park they find the hidden wire <gasps> and and kill her oh she's like 23 years old Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, there's a very cavalier attitude towards undercover informants in, in American police. There was uh, that British one as well. Did you, I can't remember what the podcast called, Something of Spies. Uh-huh. About um, the last, it was like 40 years where the police were, were uh, 
under going undercover a, a section of the police and um getting in with the left wing activists and then marrying and having kids with them mm-hmm. like it went so right. far they had these entire families oh yes yeah and, that's uh, right and they just and it was like 20 years later like the wives would see like the passport it was like hang on that's not you it was the wrong name and like we've got kids together and they'd be like yeah. oh I've been busted now I'm off now and that's it like leave you know Jeez, can thing. you imagine yeah really weird I wonder if that's my wife's doing that to me <laughs> <laughs> isn't it mad we're so, well, we're so sure that they're not but yeah. Gosh. Yeah, it'll explain a lot. It's that everyone I know, every guy I know says that their wife isn't cheating on that. Do you know, they always say like, well, like she would never do that. Yeah. But we know statistically that wives and husbands do cheat. So yeah, it, yeah we, all, we all seem so happy. We shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> everything's about to, you know, yeah. around the corner, everything's traumatic and awful. Yeah. <sighs> so, so, Carol is now an undercover informant, mm. wired up, you know, we got hold of the tapes. Nobody's ever heard them before. And uh, you know, how'd you get those tapes? Um, my my very good producer Miles wow. um, basically became friendly with somebody from the public defender's office, <laughs> and he said, "Look, he said meet us in a bar after work." So we thought that um, uh, you know we, he was going to let us interview him, and instead he said, "I don't want to be interviewed, but I'm going to give you something." And he brought along a box, oh. and he said, "It's been sitting on my shelf for 25 years." <laughs> Uh, you've come along to try and solve the mystery of Cow House, so you should have it. And, oh, and, it, and it was a box of cassettes. And it was Dennis's answer phone messages. It was the, the wires. Incredible. Yeah. But we also got hold of something that nobody else, you know, uh, has, has read before. And it was the diary that she kept when she was at Elohim City, this mysterious compound in Arkansas. It's this long diary. And she's a very good undercover informant. She's making like copious notes. What I don't know is like, obviously she's not wired at Elohim City because they go like swimming in the creek. So she can't be wearing a wire, but she's like writing it all down. Um, one of the first things she says is, uh, um, Reverend Malar, who's the head of Elohim City, says I'm excellent breeding stock <laughs> <laughs> and I've been approved for residency. Oh. And there's all of this stuff about Dennis, you know, who she's like now dating again for, for this time for, for the government. And she's like, I'm standing there smoking a cigarette. Dennis comes up to me with a big can of gasoline that's like leaking. He's like waving it all over the place. Wow. And I'm like, you know, get away from me. Can't you see I'm smoking? And then Dennis is, she's like, she's like, right, well, it's not like, then we all had lunch and Dennis is like sitting there farting. And <laughs> like, the thing is, when you leave, she'd left him. When mm. you leave someone, sometimes it happens that you start to despise everything about them. All the things yeah. you thought were cute before, you hate. So she's left it and then has to come back into this whole thing. I don't know how she could bear yeah. it. But also, I mean, I agree, but she's so into being an undercover informant. We're now, by the way, um, in late 1994, going into early 1995. This is relevant too. So uh, she, there's according to her and some historians and also some of the people at Elohim City who I spoke to, one of the like scariest figures at Elohim City because he was so into like white supremacy and violence and, you know, talk talk of violence, not actual violent acts, but talk of violence was this guy called Andy the German, Andy Strassmeyer. And so she was like writing a lot about Andy Strassmeyer. At one point she says, 
I have secured an intimate personal relationship with Andy and I am now his girlfriend. It's like if I was her ATF handler, I'd have been like, Carol, you know, like, come on, you know, you're, you're getting yourself into some really dangerous territory here. But I don't, I don't know if they did. There's no evidence that they tried to rein her in. They were just Have they just got too many spies all around the place in different parts of the country and different groups and communities or what? I don't know. I mean, history shows that a lot of those in the 90s, a lot of those like Nazi compounds, like, like Aryan nations were heavily infiltrated by agents and informants. And their stories about, you know, plots to blow something up which only didn't happen because they realised that like, pretty much everybody was, was an undercover agent. <laughs> I love that idea that it's sort of quite Monty Python, Python-esque, isn't it? it every, the whole group were just informants and they've now blown something up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Let's get into the second mystery of, of the Oklahoma. Okay, so basically, um, just after all of this happens, Elohim City, you know, cows at Elohim City and so on, um, shortly afterwards, Timothy McVeigh, blows up a federal building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people, including 19 children that had just arrived at daycare. Now, weirdly, it's kind of... It's, a lot of people don't remember it. I think because, it, because 9-11 happened shortly afterwards, maybe. Um, but it's sort of forgotten. But this was and still is the worst act of domestic terrorism in American history. And a lot of people said that they saw McVeigh in the days before the bombing with another man who the government called John Doe too. Carol, well, a lot of people, mainstream journalists, victims of, you know, people who'd lost children and grandchildren in the bombing, all became convinced. They, they, they learned about Carol and they became convinced that if that Carol's Elohim City diary with all of its references to Andy the German and Dennis Mahan, would, was the solution to the mystery. Like, McVeigh said that he never had any connection to Elohim City. However, he got a traffic ticket very close to Elohim City. He phoned Elohim City asking to speak to Andy the German. And there's a crazy story about a strip club called Lady Godiva where... To cut a long and extraordinary story short, some of the women who worked at this strip bar said that McVeigh was in there with Andy the German. And history says Andy the German and Timothy McVeigh never knew each other. The only reason why McVeigh phoned Elohim City was because they met once at a gun show and McVeigh was... Um, you know, wanted to find a place to hide out after the bombing. So he tried to phone Andy the German and Andy the German wasn't there and that was it. But then this whole conspiracy theory, and I say that not in a pejorative sense, because, you know, it's a for many people, this is a plausible theory, um, was that McVeigh was much more connected to Elohim City than history would have us know. The white power movement are much more connected than people think. And the middle of this is the heroic Carol Howe if she'd only been listened to, if their, her diary had been taken seriously, could have stopped the bombing. So that's the second mystery, which I then try and set out to solve. Is that true? Is because this a conspiracy theory that might actually be true? 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowen Branch and how you can discover this new level of softness with their iconic sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% responded that Bowen Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They source the rarest 100% organic cotton for an incredible softness to start. Then they skip the toxins and harsh chemicals for a natural feel unlike anything else. And it all comes together with their signature weave. This special design feels buttery, breathable, and unlocks new levels of softness with every wash. And they stand behind their promise of softness. With their 30-night guarantee, you can wash, style, and sleep in their sheets for an entire month. If during the 30 nights you don't love your sheets or feel them getting softer and softer, you can send them right back, no questions asked. So head to bowlandbranch.com for 15% off your first order with code RESTFUL15. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Because she is, um, at that point, an informant and she's trying to inform. So when you say could be listened to by the FBI, yeah. they, they weren't taking her seriously. She So she was hinting, was she that? Well, this is when I, you know, this is when that fog of war, there's a big fog yeah. of war because there's a lot of people convinced that Carol saw Andy the German and Timothy McVeigh walking together at Elohim City. So part of my job, and I, put, and I don't think I should tell you, I've told you so much of the plot, I don't think mm. I should tell you what happens next, but part of my job for the, once I pieced together Carol's hilarious story, of which there's much more than I just told you, yeah. um, I then try and solve the mystery. Like, is there a way to use your rational, evidence-based mind to try and figure out, is it true? If Carol had been listened to, the bombing might never have happened. Oh. And so that's what that's what the show then becomes. This mm-hmm. is me trying to figure that out. Yeah, it's a fascinating show. I loved it. Did you? Well, how's the reaction been? Are you happy? Yeah, great. I think. Um, yeah, seem people seem to really like it. Really good reviews. Lots of good reader, listener. I mean, comments. And mm. last time I looked, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose we should go a little bit more into the bombing itself. Like what? It's weird that I never heard of it either. So I mean, I'm, wow. I'm sort of pleased you say that because yeah, it has it's escaped my mind. It's funny how some things just vanish from history, and this was a very big, terrible, serious thing. Um, but I guess it, I guess the reason was nine eleven that it was forgotten. Yeah, um, yeah. So McVeigh grew up in upstate New York, very close to where I now live. Um, sweet kid, apparently not a psychopath. Um, had a different pathology, which is that he cared a lot about civility and good manners. Huh. And that's what would really eat him up if somebody was like uncivil. Okay. He'd get like really upset and angry about it. Also, his parents divorced because his father was an introvert who liked gardening and his mother was an extrovert who liked partying. Right. McVeigh took his father's side and developed a brooding hatred of women who liked to party. Uh, was he an incel? Like an old-fashioned insult? Uh, maybe at a young... Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I'd say there's some overlap there. Mm. He joins the army. 
he was a perfectionist. He got really into guns and became a bit of a conspiracy theorist. He'd listened to Art Bell, Coast to Coast, which mm. was the huge conspiracy show at the time. Right. The Joe Rogan of the... <laughs> and the reason why I compare the two is that Art Bell, like Joe Rogan, wasn't like a hardcore conspiracy theorist, but was really interested in that stuff. Okay. But people were, were obsessed with Art Bell. You know, millions of people would listen to Art Bell. Oh, never heard of right. Art Bell. Um, I mean, there's a whole load of stories about things that happen on Art Bell, which actually I write about in my book, The Men Who Stare at Goats. Mm. Art Bell gets a chapter because there's a connection between Art Bell and all of that stuff that I write about. Anyway, um, so McVeigh's like getting into Art Bell. A lot of the Art Bell stuff is kind of fun conspiracies like the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and that kind of stuff. Um, but also there's the government are going to break into our homes and take our guns away. And McVeigh got obsessed with that. For some reason, that like obsessed him. Um, he, he tries out for special forces and nearly gets chosen, but doesn't get chosen. If he'd been chosen for special forces, the Oklahoma City bombing would never have happened because he would have had a purpose in life, uh, uh, but doesn't get chosen. So he kind of leaves the army a perfectionist who didn't make it to perfect, uh, goes, goes back home, gets a dead-end job, becomes more and more, falls more and more down, you know, much darker conspiracy rabbit holes. And then Waco happens. Um, and Waco is terrible, um, the way it ended, certainly. So Waco was, you know, a church, the Bunch of Vidian Church. They weren't white power. They were multicultural. Um, but, they were gun running. Also, David Koresh was abusing underage girls. Um, but the, a siege ensued. The, the ATF could have picked McVeigh, um, David Koresh up in town, but didn't. They decided to raid the church. And it goes terribly wrong. Four police officers are killed in the raid. Siege happens. The siege ends with everybody dying in a fire. So here, So for McVeigh, this is like, exactly what he and everybody else had been fearing. They're going to yeah. take our guns away. So it was Waco that made McVeigh want to blow up the Oakland building two years to the day later. How did he do that? A, an ammonia nitrate fertilizer bomb in a rider truck. Wow. And he just like blew the building? Yeah. He, he said he chose that particular building in part because it had ATF headquarters and he blamed the ATF. And I think the FBI were there too. So he blamed them for, um, obviously for Waco. But also he thought that the building, the way it was positioned in Oklahoma City, it would have made a great photo opportunity, he said. If he, uh, His biographer, Dan Herbeck, one of his biographers who I interviewed, I said to him, well, what about all the, did you ever ask him, like, what about the secretaries? And all the people in the other offices had nothing to do with the government. It's like the IRS offices were there and Social Security were there. I mean, what about them? Were you not upset that you killed all those innocent people too? I mean, not that obviously the ATF were, you know, obviously. But um, McVeigh's answer was, well, I'm a big Star Wars fan. And when the Death Star is blown up, there's lots of, in there's lots of secretaries on the Death Star. But everybody in the audience cheers. It's just insane. Man. Yeah. Man. Um, but one of the enduring mysteries is who was John Doe too? Like this person that McVeigh was seen with, who was he? And nobody ever found out. Nobody ever got to the bottom of that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the government very publicly announced that they were dropping the hunt for John Doe too. 
because they just didn't believe anymore that there was a John Doe too. Jeffrey Toobin apparently has just brought out a book about all of this where he, I believe, I, I've heard this secondhand, so I, again, I could be wrong, where he concludes that actually that the government was right and there was no John Doe II. Um, I have no idea if there was a John Doe II or not, but what I can tell you is that there's many people out there who believe that John Doe II was Andy Strassmeyer, Andy the German, or somebody else from Elohim City, but whatever, if they'd listened to Carol, they'd have got to John Doe II. And they could have prevented the bombing. Right. So that's the second mystery that I then try and solve. And it's what, yeah, it's what you go into in all the, in the episodes of the podcast. And that's something you've often done. You get these strands and it's, you're going on a journey with you. It's so much fun to do, like the butterfly effect, mm-hmm. another podcast of yours. Um, is, is, that, is there stuff you're working on at the moment? Have you always got threads of things happening? What does your email yes. inbox look like? I do always have threads. And, and when I don't, when I have to like, you know, the worst part of what we do, other than cold calling people to try and convince them to let you interview them, that's the worst part. The second worst part is those moments when you don't know what your next story is. And that those are just immediately, you know, all my previous success just vanishes and I'm just a guy without a story to tell. Oh, and I just get so, like, bleak. <laughs> so I always try and have, like, a bunch of threads going at once. Okay. Is there, is there a book? Um, I, yeah, I'm working on a new book, and I'm wor- right now. I'm working on a new book, and I am working on the second season of my BBC show. Things fell apart. Oh, that's so good as well. Yeah, that was very good. I love the books because you, you see there's the glasses logo. That's like, yeah. like your your eyes uh, on the books, and you just see them around. You got to collect them all. It's like Mister Men. You know, you got to get all the different books. <laughs> yeah, that's a Brighton company called Crush Creative did that those designs and. So what good. a good job they did. Yeah. yeah, I don't know about the content within, but the, the book cover, <laughs> quite fantastic. Right. Would you um, do something? Well, we've got a mutual friend now. I mean, he's uh, Robbie Williams. Would you Would you do something with him? Work, I'd love Robert. The first time I, I, um, I, I got a call years ago, probably 2005, from Catelyn Moran, you know, the, the writer. She said, uh, stay by your phone. Robbie Williams is going to phone. And I thought, that's much too stressful. So I <laughs> turned off my phone and went to dinner and got back and there was an answer phone message from Rob saying he wanted to spend a night in a haunted house with me and <laughs> could I set it up? Because he was a big fan of my first book, Them, which is yes. a book where I you know, break into Bohemian, sneak into Bohemian Grove with Alex Jones. Yeah. And anyway, so I had some adventures with Rob, went to a UFO convention with him, uh, during the pandemic, actually, we talked about maybe doing another project together, but that never happened. Mm. But yeah, we. So, but you also have become close to Rob. I, I just, I loved it. We, I should explain, actually, because most of this audience is American. I Even in England, this is amazing to me. I was um, having dinner and the waiter was 18 or 19 and um, he asked about my podcast. I don't know how, I mean, I'm, I must have told him about it, right? But I, I like to think people just come up and ask me things, but yeah. I must have you brought it up. You look like a podcaster <laughs> someone I've, I, I don't get recognised really but I have had uh, one person came up I, I don't go out much either one person said are you that YouTuber and that was it and I thought do I like being called a YouTuber I thought I was a journalist and a writer and, and I thought I was yeah. these, you know these grand aspirations you have as a, and, as, oh, I get, and I went yeah and, she did, and I went um, on the edge with Andrew Gold that's it and she went ah and that was it and I said oh <laughs> Because if she at least pretended she liked the channel, she could have said, oh, I love your channel. I was like, oh, thank you. You can't say anything to... No. 
and then I left and that was it and I never went out again um, ever yes ever. you shouldn't have brought it up you need a follow up you absolutely <laughs> need a follow up we had a follow up because I did a, I did a community post on YouTube about it and she saw it and she found my email address and emailed me and said that she I think she said she was a bit shy or something like that you see you never exactly that, that's what, a lot of times in my life when I thought that person was rude shy they're just shy yeah that's it so Rob what was I going to say about him because, yeah, I got to go and hang out with him in, in Barcelona and do a quiz with him. And I was really excited because I got one of the quiz answers right. And he takes the quizzes very seriously. Right. I think the whole thing... It's, no, it's, it's not fun if it's not taken seriously. So for Americans, Robbie is Robbie is like one of the biggest names, but he's not known in America, but he's like Madonna level, would you say? Oh, Just- yeah. Well, there were certainly times, like in, around sort of 2000, undoubtedly, he was he was as famous everywhere in the world except for in America as, yeah, anyone, Madonna, Beyonce, anyone. The biggest selling non-Latino artist in South America. Right. Yeah, he, um, you know, the first time I visited his house, he lives in a different house now, the the rooms were quite small. I thought, wow, for, you know, for a fancy, for a very rich pop star, it's quite a modest, I mean, it was a mansion, but (laughs) quite a modest mansion with quite small rooms. And at the time, he was doing the biggest stadium tour I think that had ever been done. We went to see him in Paris, and it was like incredible. And I think it was, yeah, the long, biggest stadium tour in history. I mean, maybe Taylor Swift and Beyonce have like over, overtaken it now, but at the time. And uh, I always wonder whether there was a connection. Like, if you spend your life on stage in stadiums, what you <laughs> desperately want is small, <laughs> small rooms. Because it must yeah. be like, you know, the acrophobia, I mean, my God, mm. like the stress and the, the, the intensity of being in front of 50,000 people. Yeah. So I've yeah. always, I've never asked him, but I've always wondered whether... I, I heard him on another podcast. So before I ha- he came on this podcast, you know, just to see what he was like in an interview and he was talking about, it must have been another house where he said, it's a weird thing because you wake up and you see like 40 cars in the driveway and like none of them are from your family. They're all like people who work for him in the house. Yeah. Goes downstairs for the, in the kitchen, there's 10 people, but only like one person's from his family and how isolating and weird that is, that sort of celebrity thing. Yeah. He did a weird thing to me um, before his concert. So he was just, we'd been backstage and in, in his changing room and all that stuff. And then there's a bit just before he goes out to the stage, um, he has um, a group huddle. Like at first they dance and he sings songs and he puts them on Instagram sometimes. He'll do like S Club 7 and 5 and all those pop songs, English pop bands. Um, and uh, then we all get in a huddle and I've got my arm, I'm right here with him and he starts doing a speech to everyone. He goes, we've got, you know, someone's very, very special is going to give a speech now to get everyone going for the, and it's it's Andrew Gold. And well, I you was, had to incentivize I, everyone. Yeah, I was shocked. And I got very nervous because I know, you know, we do these podcasts and things, but I'm not like a public speaker. I get very nervous and anxious a lot. And I went, um, and I slowly realized it was a prank that was being played on me. Because when I said, um, the 20 or 25 like dancers and magicians, all that, they all go, um, together in unison. And I went, oh, and I went, oh, and then everything I said, they all repeated it. Wow. I felt like I was back at school, like everyone, made, you know, somehow being made fun of for something. And I went, oh, I see that's happening. And they go, oh, I see that's happening. And they're all copying how I talk. And eventually, the only way to get out of it, I had to, I just went, we're going to have the best gig of our life. And then they'd copy that. And I really, that's how you have to sort of do that. And they all copy it. And oh, eventually, I see. Yeah. And so it, maybe it wasn't a prank. Maybe that's the thing that they do at that moment just before going on stage. And you just didn't realize it. Well, there was a lot of laughter and I was naked. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> then did you wake up screaming? Yeah, exactly. No, but then it was like, okay. Okay, and then I'm just bright red and then you look and suddenly they've all gone and you open these doors and you've, because we'd been at the back, yeah. I didn't appreciate, 
over there, there's a huge stage with thousands, thousands of people and you open and suddenly he's Robbie Williams and he's on stage and there's like, let me entertain you's going and he's sort of doing all the face and people are crying in the front rows and just like, what a weird, strange thing. He's the funny, I mean, I, I, I really do like Rob. He's so kind and generous. And I think I said this, you said this to him, like I said this to you and you said it to him that, you know, whenever I'm with him, just amazing things happen. Yes. <laughs> and that's so great, you know, that's so great. Um, but he told me, I, I hope he, I don't know, I hope he won't mind. He told me this story once mm. that just I had me crying with laughter. It was so, will I tell it to you? What? The story. Did, he which told one? Me, I haven't said it yet. Yeah, tell it, please. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, um, he was playing two nights in Manchester. And on, after the first night, he said to his mother, whose mother was there, and he said to her, did you enjoy the show? And she said, oh yeah, I loved it. But I, I was up dancing and the person behind me asked me to sit down. And that, that was a bit annoying. So Rob said like the next night on, in Manchester, he um, remembered like he's singing a song and he remembered his mother saying that. So he said... Um, <laughs> Uh, he said, I want everyone in the audience to get up, like, you know, get up and dance. Uh, and he said, everyone, you know, 50,000 people, they all got up, except for the people in the VIP area. They all stayed sitting down. And he said, get, come on, get up, come on, get up. And he said, they still didn't get up. Oh, no. Um, he said, at the corner of his eye, he saw his manager in the wings going, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Oh, no. Just for people listening on the audio, John, John is might wide. <laughs> I'm, I'm miming his manager frantically waving, stop. <laughs> They're in wheelchairs. They're in wheelchairs. Oh my God. Yeah. The, the great, you're right that he's such a nice, he's a nice guy though. And, and you know what? There's so much about, um, uh, there are a lot of celebrities who I think put their charity work and stuff out in the public and he wouldn't want me to repeat a lot but there's so many things I heard just through other people about things, nice things he's done for people mm. uh, and, and they're not publicised, they're not known about and it's just someone who's a really, really nice oh my God. guy. First time I met him, very first time I met him, um, he invited me to go and see him on Later with Jules Holland Oh, and I had a little bit of a cold and I had a really bad sore throat and I mentioned to him that I've got a sore throat and he went off and unbeknownst to me, he spent like the next 10 minutes trying to find some some lockets, like some lozenges for me. And came back with some lozenges. I mean, how about that? Yeah, the very famous are well brought up sometimes. Um, the other time, actually, the other incredibly nice, similarly nice, goes out their way to help you celebrity is because is, is, uh, I, I wrote the book, The Many Stare at Goats, so I got turned into a film of George Clooney. and. George Clooney similarly would like go just very quietly go out of his way to do nice things. Those, those Isn't are, that nice? Yeah, yeah, him and Rob are the two. We should get them together. Yeah, mate, yeah. And Jake Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal, Jake yeah. Gyllenhaal. We were talking last time about how to pronounce his name. Yeah, he was also delightful. Didn't he sort of try to prank you about how his name was pronounced? No, nope, not me. Oh, some, I don't know. Not we were trying me. to put, someone was saying it was like Gyllenhaal and then it was that Jake was winding them up. Right. Like, oh yeah, it's Gyllenhaal or something. <laughs> Obviously not real thing. Yeah, no, that wasn't me.
Thank you so much, John Ronson. I'm a huge fan. I still am. And it's always such a pleasure to speak to him. He's just a very unique character who has some fantastic stories that he's always discovering. He's always looking at all these different kinds of uh, stories and piecing things together in a way that's extremely satisfying for a listener. So go, and, and a reader, I should say, go and check out The Debutante on Audible. Sign up to Audible if you have to on a free trial. See where you, you might enjoy Audible. Lots of really good stuff there. And listen to The the debutante get some of john ronson's books if you're not familiar the psychopath test is a great place to start as is so you've been publicly shamed big episodes coming up richard dawkins david Badil, all sorts of big these are big names in the uk by the way if you're not british these are these are huge names uh and i hope you will enjoy them <laughs>